All right, if you want to grab a seat, we're going to we're going to start this morning. You're, we're going to start this morning by uh, I'm going to do something symbolic, and that begins by me admitting that there's a distraction lingering out there in the world for me right now. Uh, it's the Masters. Um, that's just like hovering out there, but I don't want to be distracted this morning. So I'm going to I'm going to symbolically take off my green jacket here, and as I do that. You are going to take off whatever's distracting you this morning. Uh, I, was reading in, I was reading in Psalm uh, 108 this morning before I uh, came over here to the church. And uh, verse 1 in Psalm 108 says, I will sing, I will sing praises with my whole being. Not with some distracted fragment of whatever's left after you work through or you try to push aside whatever else might be in your mind, not showing up on Sunday morning and just kind of going through the motions, but I'll sing praises with my whole being, all of, all of who I am. And so I want to do that this morning. I want all of us to do that this morning. So I shed the green jacket. I'm pushing golf out of my mind. Um, and so let's just pray that the Lord would, would just eliminate those distractions from before us as we jump into his word, as we continue in song and in fellowship here this morning, that we would praise the Lord with our whole being. Yeah? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to come and to sing your praises. God, I pray that we would do that with all of who we are this morning. Lord, that whatever might have kind of been lingering in front of us when we came in this morning, whether it was the wrestling of getting the kids ready to make it here or an argument in the car on the way over or something that's rolled over with us from the work week or is hanging over our head in the work week to come. Lord, would you push those distractions from our hearts and our minds, God, so that we can be singularly focused on you here this morning. God, as we hear from your word, as we sing literally, God, as we interact as a, as a body, as a congregation, Lord, push those distractions from us, God. Would we sing praises to you with our whole being here this morning? Would that carry over into what we do after we leave this gathering of believers? God, I pray your Holy Spirit would be here among us, that we would be humble and receptive and submissive to his work in our hearts. Lord, would you speak clearly through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us over the last three weeks uh, or so, we've been walking our way through Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets. His book is right toward the back of your Old Testament, just probably 15 or so pages before you get to the book of Matthew. And as we've been working through sections of Zephaniah, we've been trying to answer three questions. What does this passage tell us about who the Lord is? What does this passage tell us or how does it remind us of the gospel and who Jesus is? And then what are we supposed to do with that today? We're going to work through Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 in the same fashion this morning. And what it's going to give us is just a little bit of a breather, if you will. Zephaniah chapter 1 is full of a proclamation of the Lord's coming uh, wrath, the day of the Lord, 
is coming, near and very near, Zephaniah says. Zephaniah 2, verses 1 through 3, specifically verse 3, gives us this little tiny gap in the somber, sort of sober reminders that Zephaniah is giving his people. And so um, we're going to try to kind of grab hold of that little gap because in verse 4, when we pick this back up next time, the difficult statements just continue to roll out from Zephaniah. But for three verses here, we get a little bit of a breather. Let me just recap what we've seen so far. If you flip back to the beginning of Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 1.1, we got the reminder that the Lord speaks, that this is the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, that he's spoken most clearly through his son Jesus, and that if the Lord speaks, we should listen. Verses 2 through 9, we saw that the Lord is exclusive, that he is to be worshipped alone, not alongside something else, not alongside some other god or alongside some other idol. He is exclusive. And so we need to be relentless in ridding our hearts of things that compete for his glory and his honor and his worship within us. Verses 10 through 13, we saw that the Lord is active. Verse 12 there, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably. Uh, And then verses 14 through 18, last week we saw that the Lord is just that this day of trouble and distress, of destruction and desolation, of darkness and gloom, of clouds and total darkness, of trumpet blasts and battle cry, that it is fair, that justice has been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that because of that, we need to cling to grace. Today, I want us to hold, especially last week, in our mind. Remember that the Lord is just and that He is righteous as we talk about the fact that the Lord is merciful. That's what we're going to see this morning. Let's read Zephaniah 2, verses 1 through 3. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. The Lord is merciful. I want to start with the last phrase there of verse 3. You will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. There's a way to be shielded. There's a way to be concealed. You can be concealed from the just and righteous judgment of God. And that way is right within the Lord's character. Just as justice and righteousness are consumed within the character and the attributes of who God is, so too is mercy. The way that you can be concealed is the Lord's mercy. Last week, we needed to do some work to define justice and righteousness. This morning, I want to make sure we've got a clear understanding of what mercy is, and so we're going to do some defining of that. We talk about God's grace a lot. Grace is receiving a reward that you do not deserve. That is what grace is. Mercy is the inverse of that. Mercy is not receiving the punishment or the consequence that you justly deserve. Let me illustrate. You're going 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. You get pulled over. You deserve a ticket. It would be gracious of of the police officer to pull you over there and then give you $100. 
You don't deserve $100. It's merciful of the Lord, or of the police officer, to pull you over and just not write you a ticket. That's mercy. You didn't get the just consequence that your actions deserve. That's mercy. If I were going to define the Lord's mercy in a succinct statement, it would be this, that the Lord's mercy is his gracious extending to humanity of something other than what our sin deserves. I'll say that again. The Lord's mercy is his gracious extending to humanity of something other than what our sin deserves. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, when you're reading, the way that the Lord's mercy is talked about is often talked about as his compassion. It's talked about as his loving kindness, his faithful love, his tenderheartedness. Those are the words when you're reading through Scripture that you see that are talking about the fact that the Lord is merciful. Last week, we saw in striking clarity at the end of Zephaniah 1, actually in all of Zephaniah 1, we saw in striking clarity what it is that our sin deserves, and that is judgment. That judgment is just, it's righteous, it's fair, and yet, in the same way that the Lord is infinitely, eternally, and entirely just and righteous, He is also infinitely, eternally, and entirely merciful. He is fully all of those things, along with all of his other qualities, all at the exact same time. He exists fully and perfectly in every single quality that he has. That's who God is. And so last week I I made this statement, that you cannot simultaneously cherish God's love, grace, and mercy and mitigate his justice, righteousness, and holiness. If we attempt to talk about God's mercy without doing so in light of an imbalance with his justice, then what we have is not God as he describes himself in the Bible. Instead, what we have is a God of our own creation who rather than being gracious and merciful and loving is actually just kind of sentimental. If you write off the fact that God is just and righteous and holy, what you've left yourself with is a God who just kind of thinks like ooey-gooey thoughts about us because we just deserve it and we're human and he just has to kind of be kind. That's not who God is. Does God love us? Absolutely. Does God have grace and mercy for us? Absolutely. But does he do so without also being just and righteous and holy? Absolutely not. I would put forth that if you try to write off the fact that God is just and righteous, what you've done is you've actually diminished the full extent of the love of God. You've diminished just how merciful and how gracious he truly is. What we see in the Lord, for lack of a, a better way to say this, is a fully integrated being. He is all of who he is perfectly all the time, at the exact same time. He's not just at times and then merciful at times. He's completely just all the time and completely merciful all the time. I say all of that to say this. We have to have this morning's conversation about mercy in light of last week's conversation about justice. We have to have this morning's conversation about mercy and allow it to shed appropriate light on last week's conversation about justice. My hope is that we cherish the Lord's mercy today, that we celebrate it, that we seek to understand it, that we ask the question, what do we do with this in our own lives, and that we do so as best as our limited and finite minds can handle 
in perfect balance with the fact that the Lord is just, in perfect balance with the fact that the Lord is, is righteous. All of our theological understanding, all that we know about the character of God, it actually only matters so much as it intersects with our actual lived lives and so, that, so much that we actually experience those things. And so the hope this morning is not just to walk away with like a cognitive understanding that God is merciful and with a cognitive understanding that he's just. My hope this morning is that we see how those two things actually mesh together and impact our lives in a meaningful, I would say, eternally significant sort of way. And so in order to do that, we're going to keep in mind the end of verse 3, that you, there's the ability to be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. And we're going to walk backwards, back up to verse 1, and see how that impacts us. Verses 1, 2, and 3 actually spell out for us what it is that we should do in light of the fact that the Lord is merciful. Look at verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation. The first thing we need to do is return. That little phrase, gather together, or gather yourselves together, it's got this connotation of this kind of solemn assembly. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, maybe you're familiar with Nehemiah and Ezra, there's a scene that takes place in Nehemiah chapter 8. You can jot that down and go back and read it later. What happens is that Ezra and Nehemiah have rediscovered the book of the law. They've rediscovered the Old Testament. And they gather together all the people that are there in Jerusalem in a square near one of the gates of the city to have the Old Testament law read to them. And so as they get together, Ezra just folds open the book of the law and the people instinctively stand. Just he hasn't said a word yet. He just cracks open the book and all the people rise to their feet because they understand the magnitude of what's about to happen. And Nehemiah 8 tells us that they read from the Old Testament law from daybreak until noon. And Ezra and the priests are explaining what it is that the law says and why that matters and how it's supposed to impact them and what they're supposed to do. And then when he's done and he closes the book, all the people get down on their faces and they worship. That's a solemn assembly. That sort of gathering together is what Zephaniah is calling the Israelite people to. Gather yourselves together in this solemn assembly before the Lord and perhaps, verse 3, you will be concealed. Perhaps you will be shielded. Be serious about it. Come with the right spirit in the right heart, which we'll see in just a second. The end of verse one, there's the little tag there, the CSB that I am reading out of says, undesirable nation. Your translation might say something to the effect of nation without shame. Just as we've talked about the fact that the word Lord, when you see that in all caps in your Bible, is Yahweh. That was the covenant name that the Israelite people were supposed to address God with. God had a name, a covenant name, that he addressed the Israelite people with. That name in Hebrew, the word is Am. It's an apostrophe A-M. That was his special covenant name that he talked about the Israelites with. Here, when you get to the end of verse 1, gather yourselves together, gather together, undesirable nation, that Hebrew word is goy, G-O-Y. That is the same word that's used all throughout the Old Testament when talking about all the other nations of the earth. There's Israel, Am, and there's everyone else, goy. It's as though Zephaniah has arrived at this place and he said, you need to gather yourselves together 
because your idolatry and your sin is such that you've made yourselves like everybody else on planet Earth. You were in this special covenant relationship. You invited something into the exclusivity of that, these idols and these other gods, and you've made yourself just like all the other nations of the Earth. Let me illustrate. Let's picture a couple, Diane and Charles. Diane and Charles have been together for a long time. They dated for years. They were engaged. They got married. They've been married for a long time. And for as long as Charles can remember, Diane has always affectionately referred to him as Chucky. That's her her little pet name for him. Well, they had an argument one night. It kind of spilled its way over. They went to bed. He got up Monday morning. He went to work. He kind of has a good day at work, and you know how men are. He thinks everything is solved because there's just been some time since the argument ended, so that must have fixed it. He comes home from work, and he walks in the door, and he instantly knows there's still a problem. Why? Because she says, Charles. (laughs) And he's like, oh, so the time didn't fix it. That is similar to what happens here. The Lord affectionately refers to his people as Am. They are to affectionately refer to him as Yahweh. And here he says, Goy, there's a problem. And you need to do something in order to make this problem right. You need to return. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, if you just scan down it really quickly, you'll see that the word before appears three times. Before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord overtakes you, before the day of the Lord overtakes you. Not only do you need to return, Zephaniah says, but you need to return quickly. There's a window of time in which you can do this. At some point, that window is going to close and it's going to be too late. At some point, the just consequences of Israel's sin are going to be brought upon them by the Lord. Even in this little breather that we get about the Lord being merciful, there's a reminder of the fact that he's just. There's a a period of time here that you can return, and you need to do so before that period of time ends. We've talked about how in these minor prophets and all the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, there's an immediate fulfillment of what's being said, and there's a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment here is that 587 BC, the Babylonian people army is going to sweep into Jerusalem, and they're going to siege the city. That's coming. There's a window of time for Israel to repent, and they need to do so quickly, return quickly. The future fulfillment of this is that Jesus is going to return one day. And this window for people to turn to the Lord is going to be closed. That day is coming. The Lord is merciful, and that He's like holding, He's propping that window open right now so that all who place their faith in Jesus Christ might have their sin forgiven, receive God's grace, experience His Mercy, that window's open, and it's not going to slowly close one day. No, it's going to slam itself shut at some point, and it will be too late. Return quickly. There are two images here in verse 2 that should inspire a sense of urgency, or were given in order to inspire a sense of urgency. The first one is at the end of like the first phrase, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff. Chaff is a popular image in the Bible. What chaff is, is it's this loose, sort of useless husk that surrounds the kernel of grain, and they would thresh that away so that they would be left with the useful part of the grain, the edible part, and the chaff would blow away. And as they were threshing out the grain, that chaff is so light that the wind would just blow it away. We're not an agrarian society. I've I've never seen chaff in my life. 
I Google imaged it earlier this week, and it was entirely unimpressive. <laughs> the only thing I could think of to help us kind of understand in our time today what chaff is, is like picture you're out in West Texas or something on some lonely road and a tumbleweed just kind of bounces its way across the road. So light it can be pushed by the wind, good for basically nothing. Zephaniah says, the day of the Lord and his anger is going to sweep in here and push you away like chaff. Like, it's going to blow in and it's going to just and you'll be gone. And then he also says that twice, he says that this day is coming and it's going to overtake you. Literally, it's going to overwhelm you or consume you. Think of a tornado. We're familiar with that because we live here in the Midwest. The tornado blows through an area There's nothing you can do to stop it. It just consumes what's ever in its way. It totally overwhelms anything and everything that might happen to be in its path. The day of the Lord's anger, Zephaniah says, is going to be like that. You will be able to do nothing to stop it. It's coming, and when it does, it will overtake you, overwhelm you, blow you away like chaff. It will consume whatever is in its way, and you need to return quickly because that day is coming, but it's not here yet. There's a window open for you to return quickly to the Lord and then when you do that, to repent. That's the third part of this. Verse three. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Zephaniah offers a pretty good picture of what repentance is here and in a parallel way to the word before being used three times in verse two, the word seek is used three times in verse three. Seeking the Lord is the beginning of repentance. We've got to turn and look in a different direction, turn and go in a different direction. That's what repentance literally is. Let me put that in context of Zephaniah chapter one. Stop looking to your idol or your false god, Zephaniah says. Stop seeking from that thing, something that only the Lord can provide for you and seek the Lord instead. That's what Zephaniah is imploring Israel to do. Gather together, return before the Lord, quickly before it's too late, and repent. Seek Him instead of seeking your false god or your idol or whatever the case might be. Let me put that in today's verbiage. Let's just take the instance of lying. right? We would probably say that lying is like a fairly trivial sin, quote unquote. You lie to your boss, you lie to your parents, you lie to your teacher, you lie to your spouse. The act has happened. You get somewhere down the road and you start thinking to yourself, why in the world did I do that? I, I don't understand what it was within me that caused me to do that. To seek the Lord here would be to ask the penetrating question, what did I hope to get out of that lie? that I didn't think the Lord could give me in his goodness. An elevation in my status, the avoidance of conflict. I didn't, I didn't want someone's disapproval. That's what it really is to seek the Lord there, right? I need to dig to the root of this thing and say to myself, self, 
I committed this sin or I looked at this thing and I, I worshiped this idol or whatever the case might be. And what am I hoping to gain from that that the Lord wants to provide for me? Those are hard questions to ask. That's where repentance begins, though. It begins with the seeking of the Lord. I need to search for that thing in Him rather than in this sinful act or in this idol or in this other thing. We seek the Lord, and then like we saw last week, we cling to grace because His grace provided to us in Jesus Christ has literally given us everything our hearts could desire. And it's given that to us in a way that's more perfect and more pure and more complete than any sin could achieve for us. Seek the Lord. But then repentance gets three sort of images after that. The first one is that repentance entails, demands humility. Humble yourselves. Seek humility. All you humble of the earth. It's used twice in verse 3. The only people who receive mercy are those who understand that they need it. Pride blinds us to the fact that we have a need before the Lord. You can't receive God's grace and experience His mercy if you're certain in your mind that you have no need for it. How could that be given to you? If you don't need it, you can't receive it. Pride blinds us to that. So repentance begins with seeking the Lord in a position of humility that recognizes that we have a need that only He can provide. And then it creates obedience. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who carry out what He commands. Repentance is not fully repentance if it's not accompanied by a change in behavior. That change in behavior flows from humility. It's prideful to think that you could come before the Lord, confess your sin, and then carry on in your sin as if it doesn't matter. Let's go back to our police officer speeding ticket illustration. You get pulled over going 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. You know you were speeding. The police officer knows you were speeding. For whatever reason, the police officer decides, I'm not going to write you a ticket. That's merciful. Let me tell you what you're not going to do when the police officer gets back in his car and you get all your license and stuff put away. Yeah, you're not going to jam on the gas pedal. Your behavior has shifted here. Mercy was extended to you, and in light of the mercy, something changes within you. You've been humbled by a police officer who said, you were dead wrong, and you didn't get what you deserved. You didn't receive the just punishment. And so you think to yourself, I'm going to ease my way back into traffic here at 10 under. <laughs> That's mercy. That's what mercy does within us. It creates a humility that finds its way out in obedience, in an obedience that ultimately seeks righteousness. That's a righteousness that's grounded in Christ. It's a righteousness that we have been given. We've got positional righteousness when we accept the Lord's grace, experience His mercy, and then our obedience seeks to live in righteousness. There's a picture of repentance. It starts with seeking the Lord in a position of humility. It leads to obedience and a seeking of righteousness. And that leads us to what is kind of the heaviest word in the passage. The word is perhaps. It jumps out at you when you read it and it needs an explanation because you get there and you think to yourself, what do you mean perhaps? 
Is Zephaniah not aware of the fact that there's assurance that the Lord is by his nature, he has been by his action, and he will be by his promises merciful, that that's who God is? Does Zephaniah not know that? And the answer is no. Zephaniah knows for sure. And I believe that a commentator, J. Alec Motier, gets the thrust of this right when he says that the word perhaps is a statement of trembling humility that accompanies a right understanding of sin and a clear view of a God who is just. To quote him directly, he says this, that the word perhaps does not evidence any uncertainty that the Lord will pardon. Rather, it yields a proper sense of the enormity of what is being asked and of the sinner's temerity in asking it. Temerity means audacity. I had to look that up. That word perhaps reminds us that repentance is not a presumptuous affair. Let me illustrate with another story from the Old Testament. In the book of Esther, Esther is anything but presumptuous when she heads into the king's chamber. That's because she knows that there's a law in that land that anyone who goes before the king without being invited can be killed. That's not a It's not a just law, it's not a right law, but it is the law of the land. And she knows that that's the case. And the only way for her not to be killed if she were to go into the presence of the king uninvited would be for the king to choose to be merciful. Esther knows that, and she refuses to be presumptuous about it, but she's going to go before the king. And so what does she have all the Israelite people in the city do? Pray and fast for her. The illustration isn't perfect because the Lord is righteous and his laws are just, whereas the kings aren't. But Esther's posture carries the sense of the word perhaps. She understands the enormity of what is happening and she refuses to be audacious about it. She refuses to just flaunt the king's mercy in front of him as if it were totally deserved. That's what it is to be repentant. It's to understand that the Lord is just and to understand that the Lord is merciful, but not to just presume that he will be merciful at the expense of his justice. Perhaps you will be concealed. You will be concealed. The Lord is merciful. And he's shown himself merciful to all those who return quickly and repent. He has shown himself merciful chiefly and supremely in a person. How does this passage remind us of the gospel or teach us about Jesus? Well, it reminds us that mercy has a name and that that name is Jesus. By receiving God's grace through faith, the punishment you justly deserve is not given to you. That is mercy. The only adequate refuge from the consuming wrath of the Lord's justice is found in the compassionate mercy of the Lord's love. There's only one way to experience that mercy, and it is by faith in Jesus Christ. That faith begins at repentance, a humble, obedient, righteousness-seeking repentance, and it yields an experience of God's mercy. We get concealed from the day of the Lord's anger, hidden literally in the perfect holiness of Jesus Christ sheltered in the shadow of his wing, held in the palm of his hand, our name written in the book of life. And there's only one way to get that. And it's through Jesus Christ. The cost of that mercy, the full expression of that mercy was Jesus Christ on the cross. Where the demands of justice were satisfied and where the gift of mercy was extended. Our faith begins with repentance. If you've not 
received the grace of God and experienced His mercy. You can do that this morning. We have to understand that the Lord is just, and that He's righteous, and that our sin has just consequences. But we also have to cherish the fact that He's merciful, and that that mercy has been expressed to us in Jesus Christ. And by faith in Him, we can be forgiven. We can experience mercy. We will only cherish the Lord's mercy so far as we understand the Lord's justice. That requires a heart of humility. It requires a humility that leads us to obedience. It requires a humility and obedience that seek to live in the righteousness that's been given to us by Jesus Christ. You can repent for the very first time today and experience the Lord's mercy. Or you might be someone who's walked with the Lord for a long time. You might be 45 years in to walking in relationship with the Lord. But the truth about what it is to be a Christian is that we don't just repent one time. We live in a posture of repentance. If you know that it's going to rain outside and you buy an umbrella and you never use the umbrella, you're still going to get wet. If you think that you repented for the first time from your sin and then you walked in your disobedience and that repentance had no actual impact on the state of your heart or the way that you live your life, I want to offer this morning, not to make anybody question their salvation, but that maybe you haven't actually understood the Lord's justice and His mercy. It's possible that you're trampling on the grace of the Lord. To walk in relationship with the Lord is to remain in a humble, obedient, righteousness-seeking posture of repentance before a Lord that we know is just and that we know is merciful. I believe that if the church, Big C, is going to see the Lord work in powerful ways, we need to be people of repentance. We need to be people who constantly come before the Lord bearing our sin and presenting it to Jesus Christ on the cross and asking for forgiveness, not just so that we might have our guilty conscience assuaged, but so that we might walk in obedience, humble obedience before the Lord. Here's how I'd like to end our time together this morning and move into a time of worship through song. There's a bookmark in your bulletin. Go ahead and pull that out. On one side, there's a little bit of an explanation. On the other side, there's a prayer. It's a prayer entitled Sins. It comes from a book called The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. We don't do this sort of thing all that often here at LCF, but what we're going to do is we're going to read this together. The prayer that you have in front of you is going to appear on the screens. There are bolded sections of that prayer that I'd like for us to read together, and then there are non-bolded sections, which I will read alone. Here's why I want us to do this. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you read through this prayer and you hear of all the ways that this prayer encourages us to repent and you think to yourself, you know what? I don't think I have any sin there. You need to spend some time before the Lord allowing Him to search because He's active. Zephaniah 1, 10 to 13. If, if you're someone who's never experienced the grace of God and His mercy, my prayer is that as we read through this, you would see yourself in here, that you would see that the Lord is just and that our sin has consequences, and yet that you would also see that the Lord is merciful and that in Jesus Christ, He has made mercy available to us. 
what's going to happen is that after we read through this, there's just going to be some time. There's going to be a little time of silence. There's going to be some time where the band is playing. I want to encourage you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, in that silence, you can ask for his grace and his mercy. You can receive it today. And our staff would love to talk to you about what that looks like. If you have done that already, I would encourage you to be specific with the Lord. What sin exists in your life? Take it to him specifically by name and repent. Pray that the Holy Spirit would empower you to walk in obedience to him, a humble, obedient, righteousness-seeking kind of repentance. Let's read this together. Merciful Lord, pardon all my sins of this day, week, year. All the sins of my life, sins of early, middle, and advanced years, of omission and commission, of morose, peevish, and angry tempers, of lip, life, and walk, of hard-heartedness, unbelief, presumption, pride, of unfaithfulness to the souls of men, of want of bold decision in the cause of Christ, of deficiency and outspoken zeal for His glory, of bringing dishonor upon Thy great name, of deception, injustice, untruthfulness in my dealings with others, of covetousness, which is idolatry, of substance unduly hoarded, improvidently squandered, not consecrated to your glory, the great giver, sins in private and in the family, in study and recreation, in the busy haunts of men, in the study of your word and in the neglect of it, in prayer irreverently offered and coldly withheld, in time misspent, in yielding to Satan's wiles and opening my heart to his temptations, in being watchful when I know him nigh and quenching the Holy Spirit, sins against light and knowledge, against conscience and the restraints of your spirit, against the law of eternal love. Pardon all my sins, known and unknown, felt and unfelt, confessed and not confessed, remembered or forgotten. Good Lord, hear and hearing, forgive.